I just want to say again, uh, Ronnie, Mackenzie, Bryce, thank you guys for leading us in worship this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 22. Since the beginning of the year, we've been working through the book of Luke, and we're going to continue this morning. Luke 22, we're going to take a look at verses 14 through 23. When I was a senior in high school, uh, I had the opportunity to visit Pearl Harbor. And I remember it was Memorial Day, and after working our way through the museum, we got on a boat and we rode over to the USS Arizona Memorial. Now, the USS Arizona was one of the battleships that was completely lost in the bombing on December 7, 1941. There was over 1,100 officers and crewmen who died on that one ship. And we arrived on the memorial and noticed that there was uh, three to four individuals in wetsuits. And with them, they had a, a, a stone or a rock. And each one of those had initials on it. And I watched as they dove uh, to the bottom of the ocean floor. If you've never been to Pearl Harbor, it's extremely uh, shallow. You can see the U.S. Uh, Arizona from the surface. And I watched as they dove down, and they took that stone, that rock, and they placed it near the hull of the ship. And when they returned onto the memorial, one of the staff interviewed them, and they said, hey, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? And here's what the individual said. He said, every year... On Memorial Day, we visit Pearl Harbor and we dive to the bottom to place these stones to remember our family members who died, who gave their life so that we could have freedom. So they were stones of remembrance. And I remember that that picture uh, had a profound impact on me. I mean, my grandfather served in World War II. He was stationed at Pearl Harbor post-bombing. And, and so that really personalized that event for me. And I, and I remember making a commitment to do whatever I could to always remember the brave men and women who have fought for our country and for our freedoms. And I'll tell you that story because in today's text, you see Jesus gives his disciples, those of us who not only know who Jesus is, but we've chosen to follow Jesus, a tangible way to remember his sacrifice His life, death, and resurrection. You see, it cost Jesus his life for our freedom. For our freedom of slavery, of sin and death. And he says, when you're gathered together, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word. As I read verses 14 through 23, Luke, a follower of Jesus, writes, And when the hour came, he reclined, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold... The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. 
For the Son of Man goes that has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. And he took the bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Jesus, I love that promise that we just sang, that you are good. You, are, you provide hope to the hopeless. Lord, and we see that you gave it all for us. It's the consummate act of your love. God, may we be obedient as we go from out this place and respond however your spirit is leading us to the respond. In your name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. So before we jump into this text, uh, let me kind of catch you up to speed. As I mentioned, we've been in the book of Luke over the last several months. So Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And it's the last week of Jesus' life. And so Jesus says, Peter, John, I want you to go into the city of Jerusalem. There you'll see a man carrying a water jar. Now, that would have been an unusual sight in Jewish culture because carrying water, retrieving water was the work of a woman. So this man would have stood out. So he says, go into the city, you'll see a man carrying a water jar, and you are to ask him for a place to observe the meal, the Passover meal. So Peter and John, they go into the city, and it's just as Jesus had said. They find the man with the water jar, they follow him up to an upper room, and Peter and John begin to make preparations as the other disciples in Jesus arrive. Look at verse 14. And when the hour came... It was tradition in Jewish culture for you to celebrate the Passover meal around 6 p.m. So at 6 p.m., Jesus and his disciples reclined around the table. Now I want to show you a picture. Because I think for most of us, when we have a, an idea of what the Last Supper looks like, this is the picture that we see in our minds. Do you know what this is? Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper. Beautiful work of art, but it's historically inaccurate. You see, that's supposed to be Jesus there in the middle and his disciples. Well, let me show you what it would have looked like. Next picture. Jesus and the disciples would have been gathered around this type of table. This is called a triclinium table. And they would have not been sitting with their feet underneath them. Why? Well, fellowship is an integral part of the Passover. It was... A prolonged meal, it would have lasted for several hours, so it had been very uncomfortable for you to sit with your feet. You would have sit with your feet out to the side. You would have been reclining at the table. Now, we don't know where everyone sat, but we do know where four individuals sat. Let's start with Jesus. Jesus is the host of the meal. Remember, he gives instructions to Peter and John to go into the city, so he's hosting the meal. So it was tradition for him to sit there in the second seat. To his right, we see that would have been a, one of his closest followers, his closest friends. We know that Peter, James, and John were in that inner circle of the disciples. So John would have sat there. Why? Well, his role was to be the protector. He was to run interference between Jesus and whoever would come in that door to try to harm him. And we know that because Scripture says he would have brought a sword with him to that dinner. You can see that in a different account. And now look to Jesus' left. Again, it was... 
customary for the host to have a guest of honor, and the guest of honor would have sat to his left. Do you know who the guest of honor is in this passage? Judas Iscariot. Jesus is fully God and fully man, so he knows that Judas has already betrayed him, yet he gives him a place at the table as the guest of honor. And we know this because we see that Judas had to sit close enough to Jesus to dip his hand in the, in the same bowl. And then the last individual we know where they sat was Peter. Uh, this was the seat in the room reserved for the household servant. It would have been the one next to the wash basin. And if you know in John 13, which is another account of the same story, John says that it was Peter's role to wash the feet of the guests of the disciples as they begin to arrive. And you remember he refused. And what happens? Jesus gets up from the table. He takes a towel. He wraps around his waist. And he goes and begins to wash the feet of the disciples. So I want you to keep this picture in mind as we work through this text this morning. So look again with me at verse 14. And when the hour came around 6 p.m., Jesus and his apostles reclined around the table. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now what is Jesus saying here? For us to understand the rest of this passage... We need to really understand the Passover. And we see the institution of Passover in Exodus 11 and 12. Now, I don't have time to read it this morning, but your homework this week, if you have time, go back and read Exodus 11 11 and 12. Let me give you a quick overview. It's the conclusion of the story of where the Lord delivers the Hebrew people, the Israelites, out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt. The Lord raises up Moses. He says, Moses, go to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Pharaoh says what? No, they have this conversation over and over again, and the Lord sends ten plagues. The tenth plague is known as the plague of the firstborn. The Lord comes to Moses, and he says, I'm going to send a plague where the angel of death will kill the firstborn, from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of every livestock. And if you want to be delivered or spared, here's what you have to do. You have to take a one-year-old male lamb without blemish. It's the best of the best. It's perfect. You have to slaughter that lamb. You have to eat the lamb along with unleavened bread. Why unleavened bread? Well, the idea there is that the Israelites did not have time for the dough to rise because they are anxiously awaiting their rescue from slavery. Then you are to take the lamb's blood and you are to put it over the doorpost at the top and on the sides. And if the angel of death sees the blood, it will what? Pass over the doorpost. That's where we get the term Passover. And so the Hebrew people did exactly what the Lord instructed them to do. And the Lord spared the firstborn. Now here's what I want you to know about the Passover. And I want you to write this down. In order to be delivered from judgment and God's wrath, there had to be death. But that death could be the death of a substitute. Let me say that again. In order to be delivered from God's judgment and wrath, there had to be death. But that death could be the death of a substitute. That one-year-old male lamb was the substitute for what? The firstborn of Israel. So for thousands of years, the Jewish people celebrated Passover as a way of remembering, reflecting on how God delivered them from slavery in Israel and also how he spared Israel their firstborn. 
And they would come to Jerusalem. Uh, they would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It was a week-long festival. And on Thursday of that week, they would serve the meal. But when they came to Jerusalem, they would perform the same ritual. They would bring with them a one-year-old male lamb. Now, some of them would purchase that lamb on their way to Jerusalem, while others would take one from their home. Again, the one-year-old male lamb had to be perfect, without blemish. So they would take that lamb into the temple. They would put it on the altar. And they would take all of their weight, and they would lean on the lamb like this. Symbolic that that lamb was bearing their sins. Their past and present sins. Their mess-ups, their iniquities. And then the priest would come by and slit the throat of the lamb, and the blood would flow down the altar. And scholars will tell you that if you were in Jerusalem the time of Passover, there would be so much blood that was shed, it would flow out of the temple, out the eastern gate, and fill up the Kidron Valley. So you can imagine the sights, the sounds, and the smells. And when they would slit that throat again, the priest would say, what? Your sins are forgiven. Because why? See, the law stated what? In order to be delivered from God's wrath, his judgment, there had to be death, but that could be the death of a substitute. And the law stated, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So that lamb took the place of every person in that family. It was the substitute. And it was offered as forgiveness of their past and present sins. And they did this year after year after year. That's the Passover. Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And look what, again, what he says in verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, when we see that term desire uh, in the Greek language, uh, it means this. With desire, I have desired. So when any time you see something repeated in the Greek language, it's for emphasis. So here's what Luke wants you to understand. He wants you to really feel the weight of this moment, what Jesus is saying. Jesus, being fully God, fully man, would have grown up and seen thousands of lambs slaughtered. He, being fully God, fully man, would have grown up and observed the Passover meal, knowing that in just a few hours... He's going to be led like a lamb to the slaughter where he will shed his blood for you, for me, for everyone on this earth. So yes, he is excited to be there and celebrate the Lord's faithfulness, how he delivered the people out of Israel, out of slavery. But he also knows that in just a few hours, he's going to be arrested, brutally beaten, spit upon, mocked, and crucified and bear the sins of the world. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Look at the second statement he makes before the meal. Verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What's Jesus saying here? He says, yes, I am about to suffer and die. But you can have hope. We just sang about the hope in Christ. You can have hope because there's a day coming when I will return, I will call my saints home, and I will set up a new kingdom. And in that kingdom, here's what's going to happen. We're going to sit around the table and we're going to observe Passover again together. 
This is the last Passover that Jesus is going to eat. And he said, I will not eat again until I'm in the kingdom of God, the millennial kingdom, and we're gathered around the table. It's a statement of eschatology. You see, Ezekiel, a prophet in the Old Testament in 45, he predicts this event. He's called the Messianic Heavenly Banquet. And Jesus says, listen, church, listen, disciples. Yes, we're grieving because he died on the cross for all of us. But we have hope. Why? Because he's a living, breathing act of God. And he will return to call us home, those of us who are Christ followers, and we will be able to fellowship with him in heaven. We will sit around the table. We observe the Passover feast. There will be no more sickness, no more death, no more sadness, no more grieving. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Don't lose hope because I will return. Two very profound statements before they start the meal. Look at verse 17. And he took a cup, and we had given thanks. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. So let's talk about the meal. So it was tradition for the host, Jesus, in this scenario, to give thanks. You can circle that word in your text. That thanks in Greek is eucharisto. It's eucharist. It's where we get the idea of coming to the eucharist table or holy eucharist. And then they would have drank the first cup of wine. There would have been four cups over the course of the meal. Remember, it's a long meal over a course of several hours. So they would have drank the first cup. And Jesus said, I want you to take this first cup and divide it among yourselves. Literally, pass it among you and drink. When they finished, there would have been some type of ceremonial washing. So maybe the washing of the hands. Or in this case, Jesus washed the feet. It's symbolic of a spiritual cleansing. And then Jesus and the disciples would have eaten a bitter herb. You know why the herb was bitter? It was to remind them of the bitterness in Egypt of their slavery. And then they would have sang a, a, a song of Hillel or Psalm 113, 114. And then they would have drank the second cup of wine. And then they would have started the main meal. And here's what they're eating in the main meal. The lamb that was slaughtered earlier in the day. Remember the substitute? And then they would have eaten unleavened bread. Again, as a reminder of the haste to which the Israelites left Egypt. And then they would have drank the third cup. Later, there would have been a fourth cup. They would have sang Psalm 115 through 118, and then they would have left. Now, I want you to look in this passage what Jesus does with the bread. And most scholars think it's probably the third cup in the meal. Look at, look at verse 18. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Remember, he's talking about not observing the Passover again until the kingdom of God has been established. Verse 19. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What is Jesus doing? In this one moment, he is giving new meaning to the bread. He says, From now on, when you partake in this meal, the bread is no longer to symbolize or represent the Lord's faithfulness and how he led your ancestors, your forefathers, out of slavery. But now on, it's supposed to be symbolic of my body, the body of Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who in just a couple of hours will be offered as the perfect sacrifice. Why? Because the law says what? In order to be delivered from judgment, wrath of God, there had to be death, but the death of a substitute. Jesus said, I'm about to be your substitute, church. 
I'm going to bear the weight of the world and I'm going to be the perfect sacrifice. So when you take this meal, remember that this bread represents my body. Now, don't hear me say that it's the actual body of Jesus. It's symbolic and representative of Jesus' body. And it was customary for the host to break off a piece of bread from the loaf and and, and pass it and they would eat it. But Jesus' body was never broken. We know that. We see that in Scripture. But But I do want you to know this. His body was bruised. It was beaten for you and for me. And he says, I want you to remember my suffering. Now, we can stand here and we can debate how much did Jesus really suffer because he was fully God. He never gave up his divinity. But I want to tell you this. He felt that crown of thorns on his head when it penetrated his skull. He felt every single Lash from the cat of nine tail when he was beaten over and over and over and over again. He said, I'm about to suffer. And you see, the thing about the Romans was this. They were experts in their field in terms of the crucifixion. They knew what they were doing. And they put it to Jesus. He says, remember, this is now my body. That will be beaten, bruised, and hung on a cross for you. Look what he does with the cup. Verse 20. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus has given new meaning to this cup. He says, No longer is it representative of the blood of the animal sacrifices. Remember, we talked about that earlier of the past and present sins, but now it is representative of my blood that I will physically shed on the cross for your past, present, and watch this, your future sins. You see, in this one moment, he is fulfilling Old Testament law. He's fulfilling the Old Covenant, and he's, with his death and resurrection, he's ushering the New Covenant, where he says, my body, my death, my resurrection will be the perfect sacrifice for your past, present, future sins. Remember, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus says, when you take that cup, I want you to remember my suffering. I want you to remember when the blood streamed down my face, when they put that crown of thorns on my head, and when they pierced me in the side, Scripture says the blood ran out until it became water. I want you to remember and reflect on the cross. So on that night, here's what we find. That was the final Passover meal. But it was the institution of the Lord's Supper. Communion. And we see that when we partake in the meal, observe the meal, we no longer are to remember the faithfulness of God, his redemption of his people in Israel that he achieved through what? Bringing them out of slavery. But hear me say this. It is to serve as a reminder of the Lord's redemption for you and for me. That he achieved through what? Jesus' work on the cross where he rescued you and me from sin 
and from death. You know, I was thinking this week, for most of us, lives are busy, maybe even for all of us. But there are some of us in this room who will go days, weeks, and months and not think about the person of Jesus, much less his work on the cross. And I think Jesus knew that. And so he says, church, listen to me. I'm going to give you a tangible reminder of my perfect sacrifice. And he says what? Do this in remembrance of me. As often as you can, when you gather together corporately, you are to share the cup, you are to share the bread, and you are to reflect on my suffering where I gave my life as a substitute, but also, and don't miss this, you are to celebrate. Why? Because we have hope. Church, we have hope that he's going to return and set up his kingdom and make all things new. And I long for that day. We can celebrate because of the goodness of God. He says, when you come to the table, remember that, church. Remember that I gave my life for you. So you don't have to. I want to ask for every head to bow and every eyes to close.